That was, that's great. God is good. Wow, I have a new clicker, don't I? Everybody say, praise God. This must be a Cadillac clicker. All right. Well, we're going through the, connecting the dots in the Old Testament. The Old Testament ought not be a mystery to us or something we consider to be, ah, you know, I don't read the Old Testament. I'm in the New Testament. But the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. There's an old and there's a new. We could put it this way. There's an old covenant and a new covenant. And they both matter. As a matter of fact, if you understand the old, you far better understand the new. So we've been going through it and uh, looking at the various books, the history books. And uh, well, I, I could camp in Genesis 1 for weeks if we ever wanted to. Uh, but we're, we're not going verse by verse, but we're getting an overview of the Old Testament. So tonight we're going to look at the books of poetry and wisdom. And the writings of God's people. Well, let's stand and pray first, and then we'll get, we'll get into it. I know I, Kathy doesn't like that I make you all stand so much. If you come to this church, you will lose weight. I will have you up and down so many times, you will lose weight. All right. Father, we just thank you right now for your blessing. We thank you that the Holy Spirit is the great teacher of the church. And we pray that that anointing that we have received will teach us all things tonight. We thank you for ministering your word to us. Now, can you breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, I receive your word with meekness, which is able to save my mind, will, and emotions. In Jesus' name, amen. Tell your neighbor the word is good. Now, the writings of God's people, also known as poetic and wisdom literature, are captured in most of these following five books. Let's say them together. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Those are the books of wisdom and the books of poetry. All right? And they are wonderful. How many of you normally and regularly dive into the Psalms? Aren't they encouraging? All right. Now, most of those five books are written in Hebrew poetry. They include man's responses to the words and deeds of God found throughout the Law and the Prophets. Now, if you've been here with us since we started going through the Old Testament, we've seen God's activity among his people in the historical books. It told us the history of God's people, all right? God creates Adam and Eve and it all begins there, and let me say they were created adult, fully formed, fully matured. They did not evolve from anything. They were man and woman. I got into a debate this week with a guy who uh, was telling me, no, 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 they evolved. And boy, did we get into it. We really did. It tired me out. I went home and went to bed. It was something. But... Uh, they were created fully formed. Everything was. All of God's creation. He said, let it be and it was. There is no theistic evolution. God didn't need to use evolution to get us where we are. He said, let it be and it was. Okay? Same way he's going to say, come up hither and we're going up. That's God's word. 
Now, we look at the historical books and, and all that happened and, you know, the choice of the first king, Saul, and then David, and then Solomon, and then the divided kingdom into north and south and how they, the, the southern kingdom had no righteous kings at all. No, they had some. I think, I'm, the northern kingdom had no righteous kings. That is Israel. The southern kingdom, Judah, had a few righteous kings, but for the most part, um, Israel and Judah just took a downward turn until both were taken into captivity. And we looked at all that history, okay? Now, we come to these books. The way I like to look at these books is as writings from our viewpoint. They provide a picture of our response to God in the middle of life's trials and all the perplexing questions you come up with. And there's a lot of them. I've told you, I've got a file drawer. I've, I've got a file in my mind that is marked things I don't understand. And it's in the drawer called trust God with all your heart. There are certain things we're not going to understand until we get to the other side. I'm performing a funeral tomorrow at 1 o'clock where a six-year-old and her mother were killed in a fire. Can I stand up and say I understand that? No. But can I stand up and say I know where they are and I trust God's heart, though I don't always understand God's hand? Yes. Okay? So what you see in, like, the Psalms, you see real men, real people responding to trials and to perplexities and working their way through it by faith. That's why I like to read the Psalms, because it's real. It doesn't candy coat. It doesn't try to make heroes out of people by withholding truth about them. It, you know, David honestly says, you know, I'm depressed. I'm down. I don't understand. God, where are you? I'm so glad that kind of thing is in there. Because how many of you have ever felt like saying, God, where are you? Come on. Okay? I mean, it's just normal. So that's what we like about the Psalms. They're nitty-gritty real. And so that's what we find in these five books. Psalms, like I just said, is a good example. As we see the history of God's people unfolding, we, we see how the psalmists, the different ones, responded. And then you got Job and the perspective of a man who's going through incredible, terrible suffering. And how did he respond? Well, he responded like, I don't get it. Where are you? I wish I hadn't been born. All kinds of things that we identify with. Uh, what brought him through it? I really want to know that because I don't want to just, I don't want to build a house in a valley. I pitch tents in valleys, but I pull those tents up and I move on. I go through valleys. I don't stay in valleys. Okay? Divine speech is rare when it's, when it's God talking. And in these books, you'll notice that the writers are speaking for us to God. With the prophets, we see the opposite. It is God speaking through the prophets to us. But Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, that's men and women. That's us speaking to God. And I love that. As a matter of fact, I love the Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, three of my favorite books. Now, let's begin with Job. There's a lot of questions surrounding the book of Job. Job was written uh, anonymously. We don't know 
exactly when it was written, but it was probably written during the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, I believe it may be one of the, if not one of the oldest, the oldest books in the Bible, Job. Chronologically, it would fit somewhere in the time frame of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, Job was a real man in real history. He's not a fable. He's not made up by some writer. Job was a real man, okay? And if you doubt that, Ezekiel tells us in chapter 14 that he was real, and James talks about the patience of Job. So I'm so glad the New Testament affirms so many of the Old Testament stories that our generation makes fun of. Jesus affirmed Noah. Jesus affirmed Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus affirmed Adam and Eve. James affirmed Job. So Job was real. Not fiction, not fable. What we read about him really did happen. And you know what? It was gross. He was covered all over his body with sores. You know, I'm going to go ahead and say it. He tells us worms got in them. He was laying on a mat outside. Even his own wife was telling him to curse God and die. <laughs> wow. Now, the question that Job asked across the board, the book of Job, is how and why do the righteous suffer? Now, I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of people not in church any given week because of that question. There are many, many people that have walked away from Christianity or uh, Judaism because of that question. Why do the righteous suffer? Why does some wicked dude who lives his life in sin live to be 85 and somebody that loves the Lord and is righteous and does their best to please him dies at 30? What is that about? And, and why do the righteous suffer? And if you, if you don't deal with that, eventually it can run a number on you because every one of us are going to suffer at one point or another, several times. You know why? Because we're on earth. And earth is a suffering planet. So Job deals with the question, why do the righteous suffer? He was the most righteous of all the men on the earth, and we know that because that's what God said to Satan in the first two chapters of Job. Have you considered my servant Job, that he is righteous? And God goes on a brag session about this man, brags about Job to the devil. I say, Lord, don't brag about me to the devil. Okay, because as soon as God did that, the devil said, oh, really? Well, I'll tell you what, you take away everything he's got, and he's going to turn on you. And God said, really? Well, let's find out. Please, Lord, not. Brag on George. Brag on Jesse. Okay? So he's the, he's the most righteous man on earth at this time. And how does he suffer? Why does he suffer? This is what we see in this book. Now, we see in Job that God is totally sovereign, and that is one of my drumbeats. God is a sovereign God. He's providential over all the universe. His will is going to be done. Uh, no matter what we do or don't do, God's will is going to be done. He, he, he is the boss applesauce, right? And, and what's the devil? He's a dog on a leash. We're going to see this in Job. The devil's a dog on a leash. And, and God's holding the leash. 
He's sovereign over the dealings with his people, and he'll never allow anything to come to them that is not for their good and for his glory. Do you believe that? Well, that was not convincing. Do you believe that, church? All right. Don't miss that because God's glory and man's good work go together. And this creates great tension in Job's life. Now, Job is an oriental book. You've got to keep that in mind. He was not western. Uh, it's filled with thoughts and expressions from eastern peoples. We need to remember these are not western minds that are writing this. They think differently than we do. Keep that in mind, even as we see Job interacting with his so-called friends. Now, Job is also, in my opinion, and I read a lot. I, I, read, I love history. I read voraciously. I always have. I was raised in a reading home, and I just love books. And I'm going to tell you, I've read some of the great, great books touted by man as great books. And i got to tell you, poetically, just the beauty of the language and the thoughts and the way it's all put together, Job, in my opinion, is one of the most beautiful poetic books in the world. It's just, just its sheer grace and the way it was written is mind-numbing to me when you read the whole book. Job is beautiful. I wonder, how did anybody think that way? How'd they come up with this? Then I have to remind myself, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Okay? But it's a beautiful book. You ought to just read it. And you say, well, it's too depressing. Well, it ends good. So if you can just hang on till the end, it's going to end good. And it's going to encourage you. So it's one of the greatest pieces of literature ever penned. Ultimately, it's a difficult book. It is. Suffering in a world where God rules is not an easy subject to address. It, it's not. If God's ruling, why is there so much suffering? If God's ruling, why am I doing this funeral tomorrow? See, you think this way, but he is ruling. And it was not easy in the patriarchal times, and it's not easy today to deal with that question. So how do you bring together suffering in a world where God rules? Job does that. Now, don't be too intimidated by the structure in the beginning, the prologue, you have Job 1, 1 through Job 2.13 sets up the story where Satan comes before God and God brags on Job and, uh, to Satan. And Satan says, oh, yeah, well, if you do this and that and the other. And God says, okay, you can take everything from him but his life. And that's how it starts. And so we see Satan stirring up terrible weather that kills some of his children, his cattle, his house, all of his children, as a matter of fact, his cattle, his house, everything that he had is blown away by satanic activity allowed by God. Go figure. And then you have poetry, Job 2 through, all the way through 42, and it's divided into three dialogues. He's got three wonderful friends. You know, we talk about Job's friends. These are not friends you want. They came to Job, and all they had to say to him was, it's your fault, dude. There's sin in your life. If there wasn't sin in your life, you wouldn't be going through this. Anybody ever been told that? I hate it when somebody does that. If, if, if I have a headache, don't tell me it's because I sinned. If I have some tragedy in my life, don't come to me and tell me it's because there's sin in my life. That's what they did, and they made his life miserable. He finally said to these guys, get out of here. 
leave me alone. And isn't it interesting that before Job's fortunes could turn, God required him to forgive his friends. Amen. Uh, In the middle of the book, Job chapter 28, the central question is, uh, where does wisdom come from? That's the middle of the book. Where does wisdom come from? Now, here we see the practical relationship of wisdom that comes from God and suffering. I had a pastor tell me this week, I love getting with pastors, and we were just talking, and this one pastor said, you know, this isn't going to sound good. It's not a real good confession, but I'm going to tell you, I've learned my greatest lessons in suffering more than anything else. When there's pain involved, I've really learned some great lessons. And you know what? David said the same thing. Before I was afflicted, I strayed away from you, God. Before I was afflicted, I strayed away. But now that I've been afflicted, I keep your word. Pain drives you to your knees. I've never had to pray for pain. It has always found me. How many of you can say the same thing? All right. So I said to that pastor, I said, amen, I know, it's, it's true. Now, are we wisest because of our successes or are we wisest because of our sufferings? Job is going to deal with that. Now, where does our wisdom grow the most? Where does it deepen? Obviously, the answer in Job is not in success, but it's in pain. Don't pray for pain, like I just said. You will have it without praying for it. People are going to hurt you. People are going to disappoint you. You're going to disappoint you. You may deal with something physically, mentally, whatever it is. When you experience pain, it's, it's, if you can see it through God's eyes, as you go through it and God takes care of it, it's going to teach you and it will deepen you if you let it. Now, obviously, the answer, uh, I went, okay, this is where wisdom becomes a reality and wisdom begins to take root in our suffering. This is what we're seeing unfold in the book of Job. Now, there's three monologues, Job 29 through 41, and the epilogue. Now, when you read Job, don't look for an easy answer to why do the righteous suffer. Because you know what? After this whole book, this long, profound book, it doesn't give you an easy answer for why the righteous suffer. If God is good, why is there so much evil in the world? Do you know how many atheists there are on earth because of that question? Oh, don't tell me there's a God. If there's there's a God, why is there so much evil? There there can't be a God. Look at all the evil. But there is a God. Now, if there is any book where God had the opportunity to give the answer to us, it was in the book of Job. Here's Job looking up saying, why is this happening to me? What did I do, God? Why did you let this take place? And it would be easy for God to say, here's why. But he doesn't do that. What does God do? He asked Job 40 or more questions that reveal to Job his character as the only sovereign God. Amen? 40 questions that reveal to Job that God is sovereign. Now, he essentially says, you can trust me. I want everybody to say that with me. You can trust God. You say, I can trust God. Now, y'all are doing that sort of good. Let me ask you, in all, in, no matter what you're going through, can you say, I can trust God? Let's try this. He's trustworthy. Can you honestly say with me, he's never let me down no matter what I've been through? Yeah. People will fail you, but God won't. You will fail you, but God won't. And so 
Job comes out of this saying, I, I can trust God. Trust me is one of the great messages from God in Job. So don't look for an easy answer. Now, let me give you some practical truths that you can glean from Job. First, God alone is sovereign. Don't forget Job 1 and 2. It shows us that Satan can't move without God's permission. God is sovereign. Satan is not in control, though there are days, believe me, like you, I read the news and say it looks like the devil is doing whatever he wants, but he's a dog on a leash. He cannot move without God's permission. That's what Job 1 and 2 shows us. Satan is not sovereign. Satan is not free. He cannot do what he wants. And he's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at once. He's not omnipotent, all-powerful. He's not omniscient, all-knowing. There's things Satan wishes he knew that he doesn't know. There's power he wishes he has that he had that he doesn't have. Satan is not free to do whatever he wants to do in the world. So Satan can only do what God allows him to do by God's providence. Now, that's good news. Satan is not sovereign. God alone is. Second, suffering is a privilege that God extends to his children. Now, it was hard for me to write that. It really was. Because I've suffered at times where I didn't feel privileged. <laughs> How about you? But you know what? The Bible says that if you suffer in the will of God, it's a privilege. It's something we see unfolding in the book of Job. It reminds me of something Peter said. Let's read this together, everybody. 1 Peter 4, 19. Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Okay? So there you go. And God promised in Romans 8, 28, even when you suffer, he promises to work it together for your good according to his purpose because you love him and you're called according to his purpose, okay? Now, here's the third thing in Job. God is glorified when suffering saints worship him. Now, we don't worship him for the suffering. We don't thank him for the suffering, but we thank him in the suffering. Okay? And you look at Revelations where you see those who have been martyred at the throne of God singing his praises forever and ever. That's what you see in Revelations. Those that were decapitated for the word of God are in heaven worshiping God and asking God, hey, when are you going to take vengeance on those that did this to me? But they're worshiping as well. They're worshiping God. And if you ever read something like Fox's Book of Martyrs and you see the way so many Christians down through the ages have been martyred and you read about the ones that were thrown to wild animals like in the days of Rome when they would put them in a coliseum, wrap them in animal skins with their children and put them into the middle of a coliseum filled with a crowd that reminds you of a modern-day football crowd and they would cheer as the animals tore them to pieces and you know what those Christians would do? They would worship God. When they were burned at the stake, they would worship God and commit their souls to his good keeping. Something comes upon a child of God that is facing martyrdom that is supernatural. And they praise God. And you know what? God is honored 
when we praise him, not for the suffering, in everything give thanks, not for everything, but in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. There's many things that have happened in my life. I don't thank him for it, but I've learned to thank him in it. Because as soon as I begin to worship God, something in me begins to get set free. So I'm telling you, folks, one of the great weapons you and I have is worship and praise in the midst of suffering. So we see this in Job. Job got to the place towards the end of the book where he's, he's thanking God. He's worshiping God. He's submitting to God. God is honored when suffering saints worship him. This is the message of Job. The final result of Job's suffering is found at the end of the book. And I love this. And if you want to know what Job is all about, we're about to read it. And I want you to read it with me. If you want to see why God let Job go through what he did, the answer is Job 42, verse 5. Read it with me, would you? Here's Job. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Do you get that? Here's what he's saying. He's confessing that much of what he had known of God had been second-hand. But following his suffering, he had a personal revelation of who God really was. So God said, yeah, my, my, my servant Job is righteous in all the earth. But God was knowing there's something he lacks. Most of what he knows about me is what somebody's told him. So at the end of the suffering he's going to go through, and I ask him those 40 questions that are rhetorical questions because the questions in themselves tell you something about God. When he comes out of that, he's going to have a personal relationship with me on a depth level he has never known. God worked that terrible suffering for his good. And at the very end of the book, he gave him double for his trouble. So, hey, if this happened to Job in the Old Covenant, where does it leave us in the New Covenant? Because we have a better covenant. We have a better blood. We have a better faith. We have a better mediator. We've got a better everything. So God's going to work your suffering out for your good. And when you come out on the other side, I guarantee you, if you don't get bitter, but you get better, you will know the Lord better than before you went in. Give the Lord a hand of praise for that. It's a promise. It's a promise. Now, that's Job in a nutshell. Now we've got the Psalms. The word psalm means a poem sung to musical accompaniment. All the Psalms were meant to be sung. The Psalms are basically the hymnal of the Jewish nation, and they were intended to be sung. One of the songs we sang tonight was a psalm. Now, these are not just poems that were written for a poetry book, but they're actually songs. And we come out of Job, so we go from Job and suffering to psalms with a song. And that's the way the Christian life works, in my opinion. You go from suffering to a song. Now, the book of Psalms was written by many authors from the early monarchy until after the exile. Okay, so from the first king to their release from Babylonian captivity, the Psalms were written. Now, David wrote a lot of the Psalms, but he didn't write the entire book of Psalms. They're not all what we call Davidic. We have others like Asaph, the Psalms of Asaph, and some of those Psalms of Asaph are excellent. Uh, the sons of Korah, they, they wrote several Psalms. Solomon wrote one, okay? The Psalms were written throughout the history of God's people. 
In some of the Psalms, we know what part of the history they're alluding to, and some we don't know what they're talking about. But it's great to be able to get a picture of what was happening in the history of the people of Israel when a song was written in the form of a psalm. For instance, when David had sinned with Bathsheba and he finally repented, you have Psalms 51 saying, Create in me a pure heart, O God. How many of you have ever prayed this prayer? Let me see. Raise your hand real good and high if you've ever prayed this. Sure. And in this generation of filth and perversion, I'll tell you, you need to pray this prayer often. Lord, create in me a clean heart because I'm living in a generation of filthy hearts. Amen? So he said, renew a steadfast spirit. with Plant me again, Lord. Establish me again. Get me back on the right track. And we know that that's following Bathsheba and David's ordering a hit on her husband. Now that's just one example of what you find all throughout the book. Now the authors of the Psalms are expressing trust in and praise toward the Lord for his greatness and his goodness. Trust, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times the Psalms have saved my sanity. I've prayed them. As a matter of fact, here's something great you can do if you ever want to try it. Read five Psalms and one proverb every day, and you'll finish the whole book of Psalms and the whole book of Proverbs once a month. I did that for years. When you get to Psalms 119, give yourself more time because that takes a while. But five Psalms and one proverb strengthens your faith and gives you wisdom for the day, and you'll go through the whole book of Psalms and Proverbs every month. Okay? Now, it tells us in the Psalms the Lord is the sovereign king of the universe and the nations. That's emphasized over and over again. It says, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all people. Psalms 96.3. Now there's five divisions in the Psalms, and each one concludes with a doxology. Now I showed the Greek up there just so you could see it, but a doxology is, is from the Greek word doxa, which means glory, and logia, which means saying. So the psalm or a doxology is a glorious saying or it's a saying about his glory. And it's a short hymn of praise to God. You know, uh, praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's a doxology. Okay? It's a, it's a, it's a song of praise concerning the glory of God. Now, Here's the five sections. Book one consists of Psalms 1 through 41. Book two, Psalms 42 through 72. Book three, 73 through 89. Book four, 90, 90 through 106. And book five, 107 through 150. By the time we get to book three, did you know there's only one Davidic song left? By the time you get to three? Well, David sure didn't write them all. Now there's different types of psalms. But the main types consist of personal praise and personal lament over things that are difficult. And that's why I love the Psalms. Why art thou disquieted within me, O my soul? Why are you cast down within me? Why are you disquieted? David's talking to his soul. He says, hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him 
who is the health of my countenance and my God. Here's, here's David saying, man, I'm as blue as blue can get, but I'm going to talk to myself. I'm going to talk to my soul. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Don't you know there's a God? Snap out of it. Get with it. Turn your eyes upwards because you're yet going to praise him. For he is your health and your countenance, and he is your God, and he's not going to fail you, let you down, walk away. He's going to pick you up, and you're going through this. If he takes you to it, he's going to take you through it. Don't stay down in your blueness. God is good. That's that song. And I, and I love that. And, and so the Psalms are full of things like that. The Psalms have repeated themes. Why is this going on? Why is this happening to me? And then I like this one. I don't know if you can pray the New Testament. God, strike them down. <laughs> How many of you have ever said, Lord, if you don't mind? How many of you ever, you, you, here's what we're really doing. We're essentially asking God to go do a hit for us. Now, I do believe in turning your enemies over to God. I turn enemies over to God. And, and, I, and, and, and then I try to do good for them when the opportunity opens itself up. I try to do something good because it keeps me free. I give them to God, but I don't know how far you can go with, Lord, would you strike them down? Because there's people in your life, come on, if something bad happened to them tonight, you would say, it's about time, Lord. I don't know. I'm not sure God chooses football teams. I don't think he's got a Super Bowl favorite. I don't know. I do know this. When you turn enemies over to God and leave them in his hand and they've truly wronged you and you go on and you forgive them, God has a way. Sooner or later, some way, someday, God brings them to answer for it. This I have seen. But you've got to forgive and go on. Again, I was talking to a pastor this week. The pastor said he had a guy leave his church who had been on his pastoral staff. His associate, and this associate left and went right across the street and started a church. And this pastor I was talking to was, became eaten up with bitterness because he started, he started courting, this guy started courting his tithers, his good solid people and tried getting them over there and got several of them. And he said to me, he said, Jeff, I wanted out of the ministry. I wanted to leave. I was asking God to give me an out. I wanted to walk away because of how that stung. And I said, well, that guy told you two things. If you've got to take the bricks off another man's building to build your own, you don't got it. Because if you've got it, I can drop you in the middle of the Sahara Desert and you will build a church. It's just that simple. But if you don't have it, you've got to try to pull from other people's sheep to get it. And I said, well, how'd you get through it? He said, I wrote him a long letter after months of just boiling and asking God to let me out of the ministry. I wrote him a letter, told him what had offended me, told him how I forgave him. And he said, Pastor Jeff, as soon as I did that, revival happened in my church. And I said, did he answer you? He said, no, I didn't expect him to either, but I don't need him to answer me because God answered me. 
Okay? And this, this kind of thing happens all the time. So instead of saying, God, strike them down, forgive them and move on, and that's the most powerful thing you can do. Because revenge is best served by success. Now, we're allowed to really see the writer's hearts come out in these songs. It gives us a lot to wrestle with as we study. Now, many of the psalms are corporate, not just for one person to sing, but for the people of Israel to sing. There's both corporate praise and, and a corporate lament. There's also wisdom psalms, royal psalms. We see prophetic glimpses of Christ in a number of the psalms. You see the crucified Savior in Psalms 22 when there was no such thing as the cross. It's totally prophetic. You see Christ as the shepherd in Psalms 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Tie these psalms to what is going on in the New Testament. You see Christ as the sacrifice for sin in Psalms 40, 68. You see him as the rock in Psalms 118, 2 through 3. So the whole word of God agrees with itself. There's never a contradiction. The same theme runs through it. The Old Testament looks forward to Christ. The New Testament looks back on Christ. But Jesus is the main subject of the whole Bible. Now, for me, one of the great values of the Psalms is that they provide spiritual medicine and encouragement for the soul in dark times. They're wonderful to pray word for word to God in tough times. Now, let's go to the Proverbs. There's 31 chapters in Proverbs. In Hebrew, Proverbs means comparison. And that's what you're going to see in many of the Proverbs. Comparison, comparing evil with good, uh, unrighteousness with righteousness, a fool with a, a foolish man with a wise man. The, the Proverbs are often comparing one thing with another. Now, Solomon wrote most of the book of Proverbs. Men like Hezekiah also had a part in writing some of the Proverbs, or at least he, he compiled them. The foundational proverb is uh, Proverbs 1, verses 1 through 7, but there's one main verse. Can we just read it together? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Don't tell me you're wise if you don't fear the Lord. You do not have even the beginning of wisdom until you fear with a healthy fear the Lord. If I go do that, I'm going to have to deal with my God. I walk in righteousness because I don't want to deal with his chastening. I know that my God watches and weighs every one of my thoughts, words, actions, and attitudes. That's the fear of the Lord. So without the fear of the Lord, there's no real wisdom. I don't care what you call yourself, philosopher, poet, uh, you know, I commentator. I don't care what you call yourself. But if you don't have the fear of the Lord, you don't have any wisdom. Okay? In Proverbs, wisdom is supreme and is to be highly desired and sought after. We need wisdom. We want wisdom. Solomon asked for wisdom over money and fame and everything else when he began his kingdom. He said, God, give me wisdom. The major themes that unfold in Proverbs are attain wisdom and reject folly. Walk in righteousness and avoid evil. Constantly, that's where the, the Proverbs go. These contrasts are seen throughout. Wisdom and folly, righteousness and evil, comparisons. These are, there are constant warnings throughout the book of Proverbs to embrace righteousness and run from folly. My son, when sinners entice you, do not consent. 
run, flee. The goal of wisdom literature is to apply the word to practical living. That's why I love it. It's practical. The law that was given to God's people through Moses didn't cover many of the things pertaining to practical, everyday, wise living. It, it just didn't do it. Thou shalt not, you know, ten different times. That doesn't tell me about practical stuff, but Proverbs breaks it down and gives us practical wisdom for daily living. Now, what we see in Proverbs, as well as other parts of wisdom literature, is the practical application of the law. Many of the Proverbs were intended to be memorized and recited by those who were young, because so many of the sayings that dealt with pressure to sin are found addressing the young. We often find a proverb starting this way, quote, my son, pay attention to my wisdom. Here's another one. Hear, my children, the instruction of a father. So Solomon is looking at the young and saying, before you ruin your life, let me give you wisdom. How many of you wish you'd have some great wisdom when you were 13, 12, right? So if you teach children the Proverbs, you can save them from ruin. Now, the Proverbs address a wide variety of important issues like the tongue, finances, friendship, home, business, contracts, marriage, sexual temptation, foolish and wise living, and on and on. Intensely practical. You should read the Proverbs. You should read the Proverbs through at least, at least once a year, at least. In Proverbs, there's a lot about sexuality, a man's relationship with a woman, men being carried away by women who are evil, called the strange woman. But you know, there's strange men too. Come on, ladies, you need to amen. All right. And a lot about how God is honored by our wise living. There's constant warnings to be on guard against sin. And lastly, Jesus is ultimately found in the wisdom of God, or to be the wisdom of God. If you read Proverbs chapter 8, uh, you find wisdom personified as a woman, and she's standing in the streets, really in juxtaposition to the strange woman who also sits uh, on, on the corner and calls to simple, foolish young men passing by. Uh, Solomon juxtaposed wisdom personified as a woman standing on a corner, calling to men to walk in wisdom and not sexual sin. And uh, calling to simple ones and to fools to depart from evil and come to her. And, and believe me, that voice is clearly the voice of the Lord Jesus calling people to repent of sinful ways and follow him. Now, the last one I'm going to deal with tonight is Ecclesiastes. Real quickly, let's look at it. Ecclesiastes was written by what is called the teacher, who is Solomon. The key question that Ecclesiastes asks is, is life really worth living? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. I mean, this is such an uplifting book. <laughs> you know what it is? It's a very melancholy book. It's plaintiff cry. Here's what you hear. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And that's how it starts off. Well, who's going to keep reading that? But I'm going to show you what's going on. Unfortunately, it's not the only, only the message of the first part of the book, but it's the message of the second part, the third part. It goes all the way through it. It's just meaningless. Over and over again, life is meaningless. Well, why in the world is that in the Word of God? 
We live our lives, says Solomon, and we die. And somebody else inherits all of our wealth, and then they turn around and waste it. So what do we work for? <laughs> I mean, you read about that all the time. That's why these rich, rich, rich people, when they die, leave everything to their dog or their cat. <laughs> and they do. So that, this is what vexes Solomon in Ecclesiastes. And it's basically the message of Ecclesiastes. You, you do all this, you work, you, you make money, you do well, and then what for? You're just going to die. And somebody's going to take it that never worked for it, and they're going to spend it. And so what, what was it all for? It's a depressing book, unless we understand that Ecclesiastes was written by a disillusioned Solomon. Now listen carefully, church. This is so important. Solomon had strayed from the faith of his younger days. By the time he was an old man, he had strayed. He had broken God's uh, command to not marry pagan women. And he married many pagan women, and they carried him off into idolatry. They influenced him. The mighty man of wisdom did not bring them up. He brought, they brought him down. So that by the time he's an old man, you know what he is? He's a disillusioned, disenchanted, straying from God, disconnected from God, old man. He's lost sight. He's lost his vertical relationship. All he sees is horizontal. And, and that's what he means all the time by the phrase under the sun. There's, there's nothing good under the sun. All these things happen under the sun. It's not right that these things happen under the sun. Under the sun simply means that life without God. Life without God is horizontal living. It's a horizontal worldview. It's why people commit suicide. Because when you lose the vertical touch with God, which we were born to have, where when I go through something, I go vertical, and I take it to God, and I receive wisdom and strength and guidance and comfort and healing. So I must have, without this, I would die next week. God just amen me. <laughs> See, but you know what, what's wrong with our country? Our country has lost this. And they're only this. And if this is all you have, then you start saying this. It's all meaningless. Vanity, vanity. All is vanity. What's it all for? There's nothing for it. I don't see, I see no redemptive reason for anything I do. He lost this. And he was dying because of it. He says, therefore, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Really? Not to me. Because Jesus says, store up, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupt nor thieves don't break through and steal. In other words, what I do here on earth is storing up for me treasures in heaven so that it is not vanity, vanity, all is vanity. It is redemptive. There is a hereafter. We're going to receive rewards. We're going to live forever. There is eternal life. But if you get disconnected from God, this is all you have. You work out your own problems yourself or not. You look to people or things, money, fame, drugs, alcohol, relationships. If this is all you have, you're going to 
you're going to end up in hopeless nihilism, which means there's no meaning to life. Why not just live crazy and die? For from the ground I came to the ground I returned, and that's all that there is. And that's what happened to poor Solomon. Life without God, that's the way he was living. Many of the things he says aren't true. They're a matter of perspective. For instance, if you know your work on earth is going to be rewarded in heaven, that's not vanity and a chasing after the wind. I know I'm going to get a reward from God by his grace for ministering his word. I've been doing it since I was 18 years old. And you, every time you obey the Lord, touch somebody for him, move in your gifting, whatever it is, you're going to get a reward in heaven. Great is your reward in heaven. The soul winner is going to get a reward, a crown. There's, there's, last time I counted, seven, eight crowns that are going to be given to the righteous. So it's not vanity, vanity, all is vanity. He had just become disconnected. Solomon had been led astray by his many pagan idolatrous wives. Part of his sad reaping is the fatalistic worldview that nothing has any value beyond the grave. That's fatalism. That's nihilism. That's hopelessness. That's despair. Oh, here's a few key words as we close in Ecclesiastes. Man, labor, under the sun, meaningless, wisdom, evil. Some say, why do you want to read it? It's so depressing. Because in the end, it shows us that God is the ultimate reality, the creator of all. It reveals that all meaning comes from him. If you try to live your life outside of God, under the sun, there is no meaning. The implications for atheism here are huge. Apart from a vertical perspective where God exists, life becomes a horrible, meaningless drudgery. It also shows us that God's ways are not understandable. They don't always make sense. The author says over and over again, the righteous aren't getting good things and the evil are. Why is that happening? So Ecclesiastes closes with advice. And let's stand together and we're going to read it. Here's the advice it closes with. And we're glad it closes on this note. Okay? Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. You see what happened to him at the end? He started doing this again. He got back. So, okay, okay, there is a reward, and God's going to reward every work. Whether it's good or bad, we're going to answer for it. So there you have Ecclesiastes. So run home and read Ecclesiastes. Uh, it's a great book, and there's lots of good stuff in it. Let's pray together. If you're thankful to the Lord tonight, Lift your hands to him and let's just say thank you, Jesus. For this wonderful Bible. Thank you for the incredible work of the Holy Spirit in giving us this book. Thank you, Lord, that you have brought us out of a horizontal worldview into a vertical worldview. And because of that, we do not sorrow as those who have no hope. But we have hope of eternal life. And we thank you for it, Lord. In Jesus' name, thank you, Lord. How great Let's sing it now. is our God.